Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode draws on New Labor Forum's cutting-edge Books and the Arts section, edited by Samir Santi. In today's podcast, the book in question is Porn Work, Sex, Labor, and Late Capitalism by Heather Berg. Interviewer Whitney Strube discusses with Berg her insights into work and workers in the $12 billion porn industry. Workers laboring and organizing in this industry, Berg notes, have largely been dismissed or even scorned by organized labor and the Marxist left. I trust our listeners will find what Berg says revealing about the priorities and dispositions of porn workers, as well as failures of labor and the left to meet challenges of 21st century capitalism. Yeah, let me just get things rolling by introducing our, our guest, Heather Berg, who is an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Washington University. Porn work is her first book, but she's published widely and, and just speaking off the cuff for myself here, I think I've read each of these pieces as they dropped. So it was really exciting when the book finally arrived in, in some of the top academic journals like Signs, Feminist Studies, Women's Studies Quarterly, and Porn Studies. And so porn work, sex, labor, and late capitalism is sort of the culmination, I think, in, in many ways of the trajectory of those articles. So yeah, Heather, welcome. It's a real thrill to be here with you. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here. I'm so grateful to you for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. And I think you know, I think the dominant framework that probably people are most interested in here is, is really the labor question. And so before getting to that, which I think probably ought to be the primary focus of our conversation, maybe to sort of clear the deck and talk about porn studies a little, you know, here's an academic discipline that largely grows out of Linda Williams's work in the 1980s with her landmark book, Hardcore, which is very much rooted in, in film studies. And that up until the fairly recent past remains the dominant, although not exclusive, mode through which porn studies, I think, is generally undertaken in the academy. And so I'm just wondering what you see as your relationship to that work, because you're not working in textual analysis here, per se. And so, yeah, if you could say a few words about just how that backdrop informed your work or how you're writing against it, I think that would be fantastic. Great. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with a quote from one of my interviewees, and that is Nina Hartley, an industry veteran who puts it simply, a scene feels different than it looks. So if anything, I think that animates my, my relationship to representational analysis, which I think 
you know, absolutely has its place. And I'm so grateful for the ways that representational analyses of porn have really insisted that porn doesn't mean the same things for all consumers all of the time, that the kind of pride of place given to the imagined white straight male consumer should be unsettled. Ariane Cruz talks about that as the the totemic power given to the, the, I'm paraphrasing here, but to this white male consumer to set the terms for what porn representation means and is writing really against that in such an incisive way. And so I'm absolutely in conversation with that tradition. And I wanted to to enter into the conversation, you know, following Hartley with the sense that a scene does feel different than it looks, that that watching a scene, that paying attention to its representational norms won't tell us much about what it feels like to make it. So that's, I think, part of it. And the other piece is that, that, that I am writing against in a more direct way is a, a tendency that sometimes emerges in the field to imagine that good aesthetics mean good working conditions. So that often consolates around class markers. So bad porn becomes plastic, artificial, fake tans, fake boobs. Good porn becomes, you know, artisanal, organic, and so on. And the inverse also becomes true. So porn imagined to be bad, like low budget, gonzo, rough sex, is assumed to be a worse kind of work. But sometimes artisanal porn, like nonprofit work, uh, for example, has worse working conditions. And sometimes a low budget set makes better pay. And the director, you know, not fancying themselves an auteur, lets you come in, do the job and go home, which matters to a lot of working people. You know, the very opening line of the book every porn scene is a record of people at work. It really throws down the gauntlet, I think, in terms of, you know, the kind of intervention and and also interpretive lens that you're taking here. And so the other question then, alongside your intervention into porn studies, is sort of your intervention into labor studies. Because I think you also make a pretty compelling case here that both labor studies in the academy and also the labor movement outside of the academy have not been all that responsive to or inclusive of both porn work and and sex work more broadly. And so I just wonder, you know, for the audience, if you could give a sort of overarching characterization of, of your take on that relationship historically. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say first, you know, I'm arguing against those exclusions, but I also want to say that that my argument isn't that that porn work should be included or subsumed into the frameworks already available in the mainstream labor movement or in kind of mainline labor studies, um, but rather that doing so will really shift the terrain. And I think in ways that make both more responsive to the conditions of this political moment. But yeah, those exclusions matter. We're working in the context of decades of pointed exclusions from the mainstream labor movement, most notably the Screen Actors Guild, which has repeatedly told porn workers that they're not welcome. And we can imagine all of the, the costs to working conditions that, that have come from that. But also I'm, I'm concerned with the more general kind of disdain for sex workers on the part of much of the labor movement and the labor left more broadly. I think there's a lot going on there in some of the ways that, that the labor left has held on to its attachments to bourgeois morality and the, the nuclear family and the idea that, that good sex is unpaid and good work is productive. But I, I really do think that the labor movement should listen to porn workers, again, not just as a matter of inclusion, but really because they've been navigating the conditions that the labor movement is now scrambling to respond to for decades. So the kinds of conditions of precarization, of gigification, the kind of dissolving boundary between life and work, but also what it means to deal with a state that wants you dead. 
I think are conditions that, that porn and other sex workers have been navigating around for a really long time. And so if, if there's one thing I think to take from that is to what would it mean to, to do labor organizing, knowing that the state is no ally. Um, I think more and more of us can, can learn from that in this moment. Yeah, no, that's great. You've got such a great line in the book about sex work is where many Marxists dialectical commitments so often go to die. That, that you know, I think that that's scathing and also, you know, perfectly pointed and, and, and correct. And, and so I guess one question then is, you know, what are the conditions under which porn work is, is transpiring in the 21st century? And, and what are the political demands or aspirations of, of people in the business? Yeah, I mean, so what I what I mean with this this sense that this is where dialectics go to die is that I'm just really fascinated by how frequently people who call themselves Marxists talk about this kind of work as though no struggle happens there, as if workers are anything but the engine of history. I want to in this book bring struggle back in to understand that porn like all sorts of work is a site of exploitation, but it is also one of workers really unending creativity and and I think a really fascinating push-pull where workers innovate, they figure out hacks and workarounds and managers respond. And all of that gets lost in stories of porn as as simply top-down exploitation, which is again something that I think should be obvious from a Marxist lens, but but somehow gets lost there. I think it gets lost for the the same reasons that that we talked about in terms of representational analysis, that, that even people who imagine themselves to be concerned with work are really talking about representation. They're talking about their feelings around what porn looks like. So yeah, to your question of, of the kind of the structure of the work and workers' demands, the work has changed really remarkably, even in the last 10 years, even during the, the time that I was doing field work for my book, the, the conditions of the job changed just seismically. So in the last 10 years alone, there's been a massive shift from a kind of studio model in which most porn workers signed day-long contracts to give over the rights to their performances to a director and a producer. They were paid once and the director and producer could cut up the scene, redistribute it, market however they wanted. And porn workers were given no royalties, no, re- no residuals. So some of the, the kind of flavor demands that were consolidating around that moment concern just that dynamic, what it means to give up the rights to your scene for a one-time fee. Workers were treated, I think, misclassified as independent contractors in that context. And like Uber drivers and a lot of other gig workers who are, deal with misclassification were experiencing a kind of combination of extreme control over what the work looked like when they did it and a lack of protections. Um, and so that's one of my um, interviewees put it that, that directors had found the way to get the benefits of both, like the, the kind of employer-friendly aspects of employment status and the employer-friendly aspects of independent contractor misclassification and just to to let those converge on on porn workers. And for that reason, and a lot of others, porn workers have been struggling to find, again, these kinds of hacks to take ownership over the means of production, as it were, to circumvent middle managers. And with the growth of digitization, trapped up on that one, and sites like OnlyFans, that's become easier and easier. And so now the kind of traditional managerial class in porn has been more and more rendered obsolete lead in, I think, a historical shift that 
should be good news to the left, right? But we have now this kind of replacement of uh, human managers with algorithmic ones, which brings up all sorts of new struggles. And so in that context, workers' demands hinge on the kind of struggles over banking access that listeners may have heard about with regard to OnlyFans this fall, over ever-changing terms of service agreements, and also over the, the cuts that that these platforms take in exchange for, for offering up a venue in which to monetize one's sex work, which is getting harder and harder in a political atmosphere that doesn't want sex workers to make money for their labor. So those, I think, we're seeing a move from political struggles that are directed at individual managers and studios and, and really looking more broadly at the, the kinds of policy questions that, that make it harder to get paid, paid to do your job. Yeah, and I, th- I think one of, the, one of the particular challenges that you write about at, at some length in a really eye-opening way is the what you call the constantly shifting class politics and class positions yeah. of, of porn work. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was... I was preparing for this by listening to some of the earlier episodes of this podcast with Gabriel Winant talking about healthcare workers and Ruth Milkman talking about immigrant labor. And, and a lot of what they had to say resonated, I think, with some of the struggles that you're writing about. But I think there's something intensified about some of these contradictions in porn work that come out more, more clearly and also more confusingly, partly because of the stigmatized nature of this labor sector. And so yeah, could, could you clarify a little what you mean by, by, you know, these constantly shifting class positions? Like what, what does class mean in porn work? Such a great question. So again, you know, for all sorts of reasons that are specific and non-specific to porn, most porn workers don't want to be workers. The piece of that that I want to offer to the conversation more broadly for our purposes today is that I most workers don't want to be workers and the labor movement uh, should and can take that seriously, I think in a different way than it historically has. But what's different about porn is that because of the more ready access to the means of production, you know, a cell phone and internet connection, workers don't have to remain workers in the way that folks in many fields do. And, and so not only do they not identify with worker identity in the ways that that the labor movement has traditionally demanded, but also that kind of class identifier doesn't make sense as a way to talk about what's going on in the ground. So workers are shifting constantly from independent contractor, something that looks like independent contractor status, to self-production of scenes that only they perform in, to being managers for an hour of scenes that others perform in, and, and then to a kind of entrepreneurial model. And that could happen over the course of a work week. So the ways that we talk about class struggle in that context, of course, get really murky. That was a, a, a kind of sticky thing for me in writing the book, coming in as a Marxist with a history in the labor movement and expecting something that looked more like workers struggling against their bosses. And what, what interviewees told me is that they would rather be a boss than have one disciplined by collective bargaining or even by more worker-friendly state. And what that means for Marxist labor ethnography is one question, but what that means for a movement is an, another one entirely. And it's, a, it's an open question for me in the book. Yeah, no, that, I think that's some of the most provocative stuff you're writing about because how to put this? I mean, certainly there's one way to read that that's a somewhat ungenerous and uncharitable reading that this is just a sort of internalized version of the American dream, right? Of, of bootstrap yeah. mentality. Everybody wants to be a boss, right? And and I think the other, you know, sort of uncharitable reading that one can make of, of porn workers is that they're basically libertarians. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's 
the idea is the state is oppressive. And there's good reason for everybody in porn to think that the state is oppressive because, of course, it is. It historically very much has been to everybody in the sex industry, bosses and workers included. And and I think the ways that you push back against these reductive readings are, are really some of the most generous and generative readings that, that you're giving. And, and so why is libertarianism not a sufficient framework to explain the politics of porn workers? Yeah, I mean, so when I came into to this research, there was, it was at a particular moment in the early 2010s in which there were really vibrant fights against um, California's condom mandate for porn performers at that time. And something that was really striking to me was the ways that that many workers were seeing what from the outside looks like a fight over occupational health as one over obscenity, which is of, some, of course something that's a history that your own work has um, elaborated really extensively. And so this is a history that that informs every part of porn workers' encounters with the state. And I think that if if we don't take that seriously enough, which I wasn't doing in my first year of graduate school, then then this looks like libertarianism. It looks, you see, you know, folks march with the sign, keep your laws off my body, US out of my underwear. You know, these are classic slogans in the porn worker movement. And it looks like kind of embrace of the free market. And one that, as you say, is really quite common in communities of entrepreneurs historically and one that has been often pretty counter-revolutionary. <laughs> so all of those things are true. And but I think that my job as a labor ethnographer was to meet people where they are. And so I had to confront those ideas with, as you say, I think more generosity than I had previously when seeing them from a distance. And and when you talk to people who are in the thick of those struggles, it becomes clear that that rather than a kind of libertarianism that is seeped in individualism. There's a lot of collectivity in this critique of the state. There's a lot of community care. And there's a really, again, rich historical memory for all of the ways that the state has failed. So I think rather than a rejection of state intervention that can be taken at face value, there's really a critique of asking the state to solve the very violences that it has produced. And so what I mean by that, that becomes really obvious when we look at the ways that criminalization has made the labor of sex work more dangerous. It becomes obvious when we look at the ways that that bad occupational health policy leaves workers at risk. And it becomes really clear when workers reject the idea that the state should better arbitrate the boundaries between contractor status and employee status, given that it's bad state policy and the failures of New Deal labor reform that create that false binary in the first place. And so what workers are demanding, and this is where I think porn workers' demands are really fresh, you know, frankly, in comparison to the demands of of some folks who were like last year working on trying to solidify California gig workers' status as employees is not to further concretize those boundaries, but rather to demolish them and say, what would protection without control look like? What would it look like to demand protection from the state and from our employers without ceding the various forms of autonomy that are required of people who inhabit legal employee status? Yeah. And, you know, I think 
nowhere in the mainstream mass media do, do you hear that that story that you're telling right here, right? I mean, on the one hand, you hear a sensationalist narrative of pornography, right? I mean, on the one hand, coming from anti-trafficking activists who have this narrative of coercion and brutality, you know, on the other hand, from the right and from the state, which these days have sort of seized upon public health and, and this ludicrous idea that, you know, porn work is somehow spreading HIV, which we know and, and you document quite well, you know, is not actually, the, is not true and is also not one of the major complaints or, or kind of platforms of, of porn workers. But then on the other side, you know, I think in some ways that that slippery class positionality of the industry allows organizations like the Free Speech Coalition to essentially speak as a monolithic voice of, of the industry, you know, in ways that I think also does some violence or disservice to the nuances that you're talking about. And, and I really liked your analysis of how that worked. I mean, could you say a little bit about the Free Speech Coalition and how, how that's become a sort of dominant voice of porn workers, despite not necessarily actually reflecting their politics? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll say that it is that is a perennial frustration of mine when to back to your first question about porn studies is how many scholars in our field, folks who get so much right, but who call the free speech coalition a union. And it's really not, you know, it's, it's just legally not that it is. It is a trade group. It is funded by and for producers. And I just think that's fascinating. I don't think there's another industry in which people would confuse a trade group for a labor union in quite the same way. And I think part of that is because of the murky class boundaries at work here. But I should say, even as, as many porn workers don't, don't want to remain cleanly as workers in that class category, they want that mobility. They also do have a lot of class solidarity with of performers as such, and I think healthy class hostilities to producers and directors who don't and have never done sex work. So that's it is it's not true that that there are no there's no sense of class conflict. It's very much alive in the industry. And a lot of people, performers absolutely reject the move of the the, the industry's trade group, the free speech coalition, to, to imagine that they speak on behalf of performers. But again, that's tricky because so many performers also produce. That's increasingly true. Right now, this Free Speech Coalition is trying to adjust its, its kind of position with regard to the industry in light of the, the managerial obsolescence that I talked about earlier. As, as managers lose their footing in the business, the, their own trade group will have to adjust in order to, to continue to survive. And you can see what that looks like materially. Their dues have gone down and the kinds of standard setting that the Free Speech Coalition has done historically don't really have any enforcement power when we've moved from, a, you know, a handful of big studios who had a reason to follow a shared set of guidelines in order to evade regulatory scrutiny to just this pro proliferation across the country and across the world of micro directors and producers in all sorts of places. So that's some of what's going on with the Free Speech Coalition. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the both tantalizing and frustrating things about the story that you tell is there are these glimpses of organizing, right? They, they go back for decades and, and that mostly are fairly ephemeral, right? So you tell the story of um, Herschel Savage, a performer who, who, you know, in the 1980s in San Francisco tried to organize for a sort of baseline Wage later, Nina Hartley is trying to organize in the 1990s. What is the the Pink Ladies Social Club? You know, today we've got the um, the Adult Performers Actors Guild, but but we haven't seen 
we haven't seen a successful institutionalization of that kind of organizing that's been sustained. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, again, you know, there, there's a temptation to read this as then a, a sort of history of, of failure. I don't think that's the narrative you're trying to tell, though. Mm-hmm. You know, and in fact, I think you point toward other more sustained organic formations of organizing like mutual aid and information sharing, things like that, that do have a continuous and, and quite robust history. And, and so, yeah, I wonder if you could just say a few more words about that. What what organizing looks like outside of the formal union as model, because that so dominates discussion on on the left today as well. Yeah, and I'll say that that's the framework that I had coming into this conversation, or rather to the research. I was looking for stories of, of struggle that looked more like traditional unionizing. And and I, you know, it took some years of, of performers telling me that wasn't their political priority for me to catch up. And I think that, you know, there's some some left readers of the book have been frustrated with perhaps my overcorrection there, uh, my my like commitment to really taking people at their word when they say that that's not a priority. And maybe then there's a, a conflict between my uh, responsibilities politically and my responsibilities as an ethnographer. But but I will say that the, the process of doing the research moved me, you know, more more fully into a kind of anti-authoritarian left position and an autonomous one that that is most interested in forms of sabotage, hacking, mutual aid, and and kind of more subterranean forms of collectivity, and less interested in in forms of of unionization and collective action that do make a direct address to the state. And so, you know, that doesn't look like organizing to a lot of people and to a lot of readers, but I I don't think that we can have a labor left that that requires of workers forms of struggle that don't feel organic to people on the ground. So rather than a, a story of failure on the part of porn worker organizing, if anything, I think I'm telling a story of kind of imaginative failures on the part of a labor left that looks for forms of collective action that made a lot of sense in some contexts and some jobs, I think made more sense in the context of jobs that were geographically organized in such a way that people were working together, that the, the refusal of work through strikes, for example, had a direct effect on employers that could be leveraged in a more obvious way. But we're just not working on that terrain anymore. We're also, I think, well past the point of imagining that the state will respond in anything like good faith. And so I've become just more and more interested alongside the workers in my book with other tactics, with tactics that, that again, enter into the, the conversation knowing that that the state is is not not useful. And as one person said, you know, what would it mean to organize as if the state didn't exist? I think that's not something that, that the traditional labor movement is is willing to engage just yet. Yeah, I mean, that also raises some questions about what solidarity can or should look like, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because, you know, one thing, one argument you make in the book is that solidarity is hard within porn work because of the kind of shifting class positionality that, you know, today you might be an employee, tomorrow you're somebody else's boss. Yeah. And, and that poses certain, stru- you know, that, that poses a lot of struggles within the industry. For folks who are outside of the industry, you know, and, and I think specifically, I mean, here probably academics who work on this material, but also people on the labor left for whom the answer often is unionize, 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 right? You know, if that's not going to be the most useful framework, what, what can and should solidarity look like for, for academics and also for the labor left here? I mean, I think 
The other thing that I, I want to say um, to bridge this question to our last about why traditional forms of unionizing don't work here is because they require employee status. Um, and, and they require both, I think, conceptually, politically, but also um, in terms of labor law, an employing party that is identifiable, that acts like an employer, but also extracts profit like an employer. And porn workers don't want that. And I think there's, there's a, a, an, again, an imaginative failure in forcing workers to remain in a subordinate position so that they can organize in a more legible way. So what that means for, for academic solidarity, I think, you know, sex workers and, and porn workers more specifically have been very clear about, about their demands for solidarity that, that really, again, focus on, on needing a lot of support from allies right now in their fights for payment processing justice and against policies like FOSTA-SESTA, which pretend to address sex trafficking, but actually work to make it harder for sex workers to get paid directly for their jobs. And the thing I wanna highlight there is that the restrictive policies along the lines of FOSTA-SESTA have the end effect of empowering the most predatory managers by restricting sex workers' mobility. So again, what that means for academic solidarity and, and from the labor movement more broadly, I think, is to broaden out what we see as, as counting in terms of supporting labor struggles, which hasn't you know, traditionally encapsulated things like asking what MasterCard is up to. But that's, that's questions that sex workers are, are really demanding that, that allies ask right now. And they're you know, very present policy fights that, that could use support. The other thing, you know, I think give sex workers your money. That is always it. So the mutual aid campaigns, there are a number of sex worker organizations that are doing really exciting organizing work. In addition to those that you mentioned, the BIPOC collective is doing a lot of work in the porn industry. Hacking Hustling is a sex worker research collective that's doing a lot of work on tech justice as well as decoding stigma. So there are all sorts of, there's a lot of work being done already. So it's not on, on allies to, to come up with anything fresh, but to support the work that's already being done. Yeah, and I, I do feel like in the last few years, FOSTA SESTA and, and also the credit card, you know, regulation of the industry, I mean, ha has, I think, alerted more people, more, especially in academia, mm -hmm. to the need for that, that kind of support. Although it's hard, it's sometimes hard, I think, for people to find an institutional avenue you know, beyond sort of tweeting about your feelings about it, you know, as far as how to organize around applying pressure that will actually materially matter there. So yeah, yeah I, I, just, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I mean, well, and, and one thing that I'll say there is that as, as information about FOSTA-SESTA banking discrimination has, has become more mainstream, I have been just consistently disappointed with the silence on the part of the labor left and major publications in the labor left, I will not name them, but around these questions, I can't imagine another community of workers who, who if they were facing just mass firing all at once, the way that OnlyFans workers were facing a couple of months ago, that major publications in the labor left would be absolutely silent on that. And there, I don't think there's another group of workers for whom that would be true. And I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated by what that's about. I sometimes, particularly male leftists, I ask like, why, like, we'll, we'll talk about this in private and they'll be supportive, but they never retweet it. <laughs> you know, and I think a few people have said that they're afraid of being considered creepy for seeming to support um, access to porn or something like this. 
but anyway, that's something I'm, I'm just fascinated by is this, this kind of silence on that it seems to be the, the only place in which second wave feminism has entered the male labor left um, is the idea that porn is gross and that, that men should shut up about it. So I guess part of my response is I don't want you to shut up about it. <laughs> I think, yeah, so that that's a piece. But in terms of more, more materially, anti-sex worker policy is hugely popular on bipartisan lines because voters support it. And so you know, I elsewhere in our conversation have been pretty cynical about the capacity of any engagements with the state to serve us. But to the extent that that our listeners are um, still hopeful that that voting matters, you know, I do think that putting direct pressure on policymakers and on elected officials to support sex workers' struggles makes a difference. There are increasingly, and this is only because of sex workers organizing. And politicians who are running on decriminalization campaigns and who I think are, are educating themselves more fully about these broader issues, and including around banking discrimination and the like. And so I think directly supporting those. But but at the end of the day, I do believe that that sex workers outside of struggles outside of the state, their struggles to keep each other alive, to keep each other safe are, are where we should be putting the majority of our energy. And, and that, you know, for allies in this moment, would mostly look like money. How can sex workers and advocates work with, quote, soft swerfs, which is to say student support workers at a university who come from an anti-gender violence perspective and are skeptical to mildly hostile of sex worker-led organizations and self-organizing? And how can the more hardcore anti-sex worker feminists be dealt with? I do like the the language of dealing with them. I do think they're a problem to be dealt with, to be sure. I don't think that that swerfs generally broadly conceived are coming in good faith. And so I don't think, I don't believe that there is any amount of, of information that will sway them. I've written and theorizing you know, and thinking really historically, there's a lot of evidence, I think, to support this claim that swerfism emerges from bourgeois feminist commitments to maintain their own class position. Um, and the, the history of that, I think, is connected to the various moments in which white and middle-class feminists have sought to rescue sex workers only uh, to place them inside uh, working in their own kitchens as domestic labor. So, you know, I think, I don't think that swerfs can ever be made to be allies. And I think that they're very, you know, transparent misunderstanding of, of how labor works under capitalism and under the wage relation really disqualifies them from people that we should be engaging in, in good faith with on questions of, of work and working conditions. I do think the part of the question that's, that's really interesting to me is, is like what to do with softwares, particularly students who, of course, are people whose whose political consciousness is still in formation. And you know, I've had a lot of success with, with meeting students coming from this position where they're at in really saying, yes, this is a fight against gender violence. And one of the, the primary spaces in which gender violence against sex work is being struggled against now and historically has been gender violence facilitated by the state. So that looks like if we're talking you know, more broadly than just in the porn work context, but in sex work more generally, that police violence, including police sexual violence against sex workers is one of the main sources of 
gender violence in this context. And I think that if we if we start thinking about gender violence as a problem of police violence, as a problem of state violence, it becomes impossible to respond to that with more carceral approaches. More police will not correct police violence. So yeah, I think when you present that evidence to students, I, I have found that to be convincing for them. I think in some folks in a more sex positive vein have found my book dissatisfying for what they read as a kind of sex neutrality in in its address. And that's true. I'm really agnostic about porn. I don't I don't think it's a particularly liberatory medium. I don't I'm not convinced that its images are are all that interesting to engage politically necessarily. And and that's obviously a problem for some readers, but I think for the kind of constituent that, that this question is talking about, that can be helpful too, where I say like, you don't, I, I don't actually care what you think of porn. And what I think of porn is totally irrelevant. These are workers with, with struggles against management, including platforms. And this is, this is the terrain on which we should be engaging. So I think just really moving the conversation away from representation clears up a lot of this. But in terms of the the part of this question that's interested in the the mild hostility of sex worker-led organizations, that's where we're, I think we're getting away from soft swerf into hard swerf. And then my suggestion for dealing with them is is to ignore them and and try to deplatform them as much as possible. These aren't people I'm willing to organize with. No, that's great. I, I think, yeah, the, the the emphasis on police violence and particularly the violence that criminalization affords and the sexual violence that police have inflicted, I mean, also links this to the history of LGBTQ spaces in a way that I think is legible to students, right? Because this is exactly what police did to gay and lesbian bars in the 20th century. And I think putting it through that lens makes a lot of sense to students today who are, who are horrified by that. We, we did have a, a you know, we, we both, we jumped into using SWERF without actually explaining what it is. I apologize for that. Could could you just break down what we mean by SWERF? Yeah. So, so it stands for sex work, exclusionary, radical feminist. I write it out as sex worker exclusionary, because I think that that's really an important distinction for me, that this is it is an anti-worker framework. And that, that comes through a, a history of, of, of self, self-described radical feminists who see sexual labor as a unique form of gender violence rather than a kind of work. And many of them qualify that by saying that to call sex work work is sanitizing because, and, and this is their framework really quite explicitly because work is something that is nonviolent that carries with it, carries dignity with it. And it's fascinating to me that many of these people also call themselves Marxists um, and yet say that to call something work is to imagine that it's good. When I call something work, I am saying that it is terrible, should be abolished <laughs> alongside alongside all other vestiges of the wage relation. So that's that's the main distinction there is, is you know, what it means to call this work in the first place. How do porn labor issues differentiate spatially and by scale? For instance, are the labor concerns that manifest in the San Fernando Valley the same as San Francisco? And how do state, county, and municipal politics shape porn worker organizing? In that historically, these differences in space have made a, a much bigger difference in terms of the kinds of policing that workers faced, in terms of you know, even just the kind of more mundane composition of the industry in the San Fernando Valley, there are a lot of folks with experience in mainstream Hollywood who who also come then with experience having worked on union sets. And I think that that, that shifts what some of those sets look like in the porn context. But as all of this becomes digitized and proliferates, disperses, those distinctions matter less and less. And we're really looking at 
at federal policy and and then also at a kind of parastate policy in which companies like MasterCard preemptively respond to perceived legal or or social threat by excluding foreign workers. So I think we're really working on a national level in a different way at this moment. Can you say more about the specific working conditions of porn workers that make them more amenable to the forms of resistance of hacking, sabotage, asserting autonomy, et cetera, rather than collective actions like striking? And do you think these more individualized forms of resistance can lead to the changes that porn workers want to see to their working conditions? Some of the, the specific working conditions, I think, that, that create this amenableness, uh, again, and not to belabor the point, but again, that, that most folks are moving in and outside of uh, worker roles, managerial ones, and independent production ones. I think that that's the, the biggest concern. But also that that's so much of the negotiating really is individualized, obviously, from the perspective of collective action. That's a problem. But workers do all sorts of, I also want to trouble this, this binary between collective and individualized forms and say that, that many of the, the forms of hacking, sabotage, asserting autonomy that this question elaborates really should be understood as collective. And that's because workers undertake them through networks of information sharing that are informal, but no less meaningful. So folks talk to each other on set. Gossip is a huge engine of this kind of collectivity online, although that is undermined by shadow banning and social media discrimination. So, So I would say that these things are collective. What makes this different than, or what makes this context less amenable to forms of collective action like striking? I mean, that's so, especially at this moment, many workers are paying a cut to a platform, but they are not they are no longer, for the most part, working in a way that that ensures the majority of the profit goes to a director or a producer. And so striking would simply directly undermine their ability to pay rent that month in, in a much more direct way than when employees go on strike. And that that contrary to anti-sex worker feminist narratives that, that most workers who speak out are upper middle class and have a lot of comfort, most people are working more, more you know, more or less week to week in terms of, of their expenses. And, and so to, to strike from something like OnlyFans would just not be tenable for most people. And so to the last part of this question, do I think that more individualized forms of resistance can lead to the changes porn workers want to see? Yeah, I mean, I think they already have, although the struggle continues. As, as Mark said, you know, one form of production replaces the last and creates new new struggles. But it's 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 not platform innovation that has created a digitization and direct-to-consumer access. It's worker innovation. It's workers figuring out ways to, to take more of the cut. It's workers figuring out that that fans will pirate studio porn, but are less likely to pirate, for example, fetish porn that's more individualized to their taste. And that's that workers have figured all of that out. They've shared the information that makes that possible. And so they have then built uh, some version of the working conditions that they wanted to see, and now new struggles emerge. So it's not a romanticization of that model. But the last thing I'll say about that with regard to collectivity is just that when the pandemic first hit and so many people were out of work and starting to do online sex work, the kind of collective assistance in making that transition that you saw from more seasoned performers was just immense even as their bottom lines were also under threat. And I I think that that level of solidarity is just remarkable. 
Can you say a little bit more about how class differences divide sex workers? I think if we were in a different kind of discussion format, I would ask like what, how we're talking about class in this question, because of course there's the, the kind of thinking about class in terms of social class and class background or even income. I engage class in, in the book um, and in my own thinking primarily through its relationship to the means of production. So there, you know, I'm thinking about class difference in terms of who is making money off someone else's time and, and who's giving up control over the, the conditions of their work to a boss. If, if, and I think, yeah, as you say, I've spoken to that. So I wonder if part of this question is about, is about social class and there, yeah, there are a ton of of divisions and hierarchies or what folks in the industry call hierarchy within. And I think one of the major ones is, is a hierarchies around tactics for political work. And many middle-class sex workers have historically, and, and some do still, even though that this is shifting in response to critique, chosen rhetorics that position them as a totally different community than people who have survived trafficking have really highlight in their bids for, for legal rights and recognition, as well as uh, destigmatization, these kind of narratives that they have chosen the work freely, that it is empowering, that it is a form of art or sexual expression. I think that's a, a particular kind of tactic on the part of, of many middle-class sex workers. And it's one that obviously um, performs a kind of respectability politics that leaves a lot of people out. It is also deeply racialized. And so that is a problem for, for broad-based solidarity in the movement. And I, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a major question for me when I think about how social class informs how people engage with the work and really just how comfortable folks are admitting in their tactics and also amongst themselves that, that, you know, we all work because we have bills to pay some of us closer to the bone than others. I have a million more questions and I personally want to keep this going, but I think it's my sad job here to be the hatchet man and begin to call, call things to a close because we are running out of time. So uh, I'll, I'll just say a quick final word and then offer a final word to you as well. It's certainly been a pleasure talking with you. And, and I really want anybody here who hasn't read porn work yet, you know, I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's just such a vibrant and a live book, you know, and, and, and in so many of the ways that you already talked about during this hour, I mean, it, it challenges your stereotypes. You know, if you are you know, one of these soft sex work exclusionary feminists who is wary about porn work or sex work, you know, you're going to hear the testimony of these workers in, in a way that's really going to challenge your, your preconceptions. On the other hand, you know, if you are a sort of doctrinaire, as you call labor leftist, who thinks unionization is the only answer, it's also going to challenge your, your, your preconceptions. And so in that way, it's just such a a richly provocative, generous, and, and well-written book. There's so much more. I just want to quote verbatim from, from your prose. So yeah, it certainly you know has my, my highest applause, and I'm really thrilled to have shared this hour with you. And if you want to make any closing comments, the, you know, the floor is yours, and then we can, we can probably wrap up. Yeah, really just to thank you so much, Wit, for doing this. I, I had heard from my publisher that it was impossible to get anyone to review right now, let alone to spend mm. time during the last week of our semesters prepping for something like this and doing it. And so I'm just so grateful for your for your time and, and your really generous words on the book and grateful to, to everyone in this space for, for making time and for your great questions. And, and yeah, to, to SLU for making this possible. It's been really a pleasure. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting 
organized labor, and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.